It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Over the last month or two, we've released uh, quite a bit of information concerning the Delphi case in particular, information relating to Kagan Klein and his father, Tony Klein. Some people have told us they found the sheer amount of information we released to be a bit overwhelming, especially when one considers the relative lack of information about this case that had been released prior to our recent episodes. To help, we've decided to do this special episode where we review some of the things we've discussed and analyze what we feel are the most important elements of what we have uncovered and offer our opinions as to where the investigation currently is and what we feel are some of the biggest unanswered questions that remain. 
Right. So uh, we're going off script to have this discussion between the two of us. We're going to bring up some questions we've gotten from listeners. We're going to talk about some theories. We're going to talk about some analysis of the case. But if we sound unusual, that's because we're going off script. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is the Delphi Murders Analysis. So given that the interview that Keg and Klein did with police back in 2020 is a 194-page transcript, there's lots and lots of details. And I feel like people in the community that follow Delphi are really, really good at honing in on some of those details and having discussions about them and what they mean, what they could mean, uh, you know, and, and sort of theorizing based on that. I think one thing that we hope to do in this episode is maybe pull back a little bit and sort of keep the big picture in mind about the overall direction this case is going. We get a lot of questions where people basically want to know if we think this is significant or that is significant. And honestly, I feel most of the time our answer is something like, we don't know. I mean, we we have what we uncovered with the transcripts. We have reporting that we've done with people who know the Klein family. And that's sort of what we have to give at this point. Um, Anything else is conjecture. We're going to be doing some conjecturing in this episode, but we should all take that with the acknowledgement that it's not based on anything but our own feelings and guesswork. It's not factual. We tend to prefer to operate in the realm of facts and what we can prove and what we could verify But, um, you know, when there are some unknowns, I think it is fair to do some educated guesswork. But we we, that's the caveat that we have to be we have to be very humble about those theories and we have to be ready to discard them if additional facts come up that, uh, you know, disprove them. Let's go back to the beginning and review what we know about Kagan Klein and his father, Tony. One thing that strikes me is uh, I've actually had the misfortune to know someone in my personal life who was a sexual predator. 
and that gave me some insights into how they operate. One of the things that that taught me was that a person who is a sexual predator often tends to organize his or her entire life around figuring out ways to get his gratifications and also to protect himself from exposure. And that is something that I feel we saw in Kagan Klein when why don't you discuss Anya his living situations and the lies he told about it? Yes, um I mean he's a very unusual person in that it seems when we spoke to uh his half siblings uh Bart and Gwen they didn't even know where he was for an extended period of time. They thought he was living on his own out in Vegas holding down a job. Turns out he was still locally based in Indiana. But this is a person who sort of went to lengths to convince people who knew him, people who were close to him as family members, that he was in a whole different state. That's not normal behavior. Uh, It was this, this prolonged ruse that he was out doing all these cool jobs in Vegas. I think everybody who knew him knew that he was a, a boaster and a liar. So I think they all saw, thought he's probably working something a bit more menial than like a, a you know a table dealer at a big casino. But they did think he was in Vegas at least, and he wasn't. That's bizarre. That's such odd behavior, and it makes you wonder why would someone do that? Why was he going to such lengths? I think my guess is that he was going to those lengths to help obscure what he was actually doing, which was preying on young girls. Also, it almost feels like he was trying to give the impression that based on his social media and based on his father, Tony Klein's social media, there was this prolonged effort to indicate that, oh, yeah, Kagan went off to Vegas. He's been there since before the murders you know you know the, nothing nothing to see here folks essentially yeah actually at one point in i believe 2018 tony klein posts on facebook my son kagan hasn't been home in two years which obviously was a lie because kagan klein was living with tony as late as 2017 at the time of the raid uh another thing i want to highlight in in the realm of kagan taking steps to protect himself. He used a variety of devices to access and create child sexual abuse materials. Anything you do online leaves a digital trail. Mm -hmm. And so he had to figure out at some point, what do I do to get rid of these devices? And I think it's interesting at one point, he basically sold a device. He did his best to wipe an iPad to his friend, Dylan. He did this to protect himself, uh, but by doing so, he potentially put Dylan in harm's way, which uh, is a pretty lousy thing to do to a friend. Well, speaking of that, he also, and speaking of Vegas, uh, a man we referred to as friend number one, this was the scapegoat that Kagan sort of set up in his 2020 interview with police. Police kept asking him, who else has access to your devices, your accounts, Uh, all these places where we found this horrific child sexual abuse materials. And again and again, Kagan, in this interview at least, turns back to friend number one, a man who he seemingly lived with in Vegas for a short time, um, basically saying, you know, it was him, it was him, I would pass out a lot and he would steal my phone, which was, frankly, a very implausible scenario that he sketched out. And police pointed that out to him multiple times. But 
he's <laughs> he doesn't seem particularly loyal to friends in that sense, or you know, in this case, I don't know if this person was necessarily a friend or or, or roommate, but he seems very much willing to throw certain people under the bus and when it when you know when things get heavy. Yes, if you have the misfortune of being a part of Kegan Klein's life, you can be assured that unless he is frightened of you, he will throw you under the bus to protect himself if he thinks he can do so successfully. And with, we were talking about the living situation. We've gotten mixed reports from sources about how close Kegan was with Tony. Some people seem to think that they were very close. Others seem to be under the impression that they were, you know, not necessarily that close. So, kind of a mixed bag depending on who you talk to. I guess that's life, right? Sometimes people get different impressions of a relationship from the outside, and you kind of just... You don't know unless you see it for yourself, necessarily. But there are some hints about the relationship between father and son here that are interesting that do sort of crop up in the transcripts that we obtained. And I think we can speak to that a little bit. I guess the old cliche is no one who is not in a marriage can really assess what that relationship is like. And to some extent, that's also true between any two people, including father and son. Uh, some of the details that were in these transcripts seem to be really telling, though. At one point, for instance, the thing that leapt out at me was that uh, father and son were planning to take a trip to a brothel together. That seems to be a relatively unusual activity for a uh, father and son to do. I certainly never did that with my father. And you and you love your dad. Yes. It's a very bizarre note, and it shows sort of like one thing in a child's development that it's important for a child to have is healthy boundaries with their parent, right? Uh, space to develop on their own mentally, emotionally, and sexually. Having your parent... That crosses a line. That completely crosses a line for me, at least. I think the fact that they would do this together seems to me to point to some dysfunction, in my opinion. I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not diagnosing anybody here. I just I just think that sounds incredibly dysfunctional. If you want to talk about crossing sexual boundaries, another detail from the transcript that springs to mind. Actually, I don't recall if this was from the transcript or if this was from the interview that Kagan gave to Barbara McDonald. But at one point, he talks about bringing a friend over, a friend who was actually underage. And he says that his father, Tony Klein, had sex with that friend. Essentially, he's accusing his father of committing statutory rape. And if you bring a friend to the house and your parent has sex with that friend, that obviously also crosses all sorts of moral and ethical boundaries. Yeah, it's horrific. It's a horrific image. And I'll add to that. One thing we heard from, again, Kagan's half-siblings, Tony's stepkids, was that they felt that Tony was never physically abusive to Kagan growing up. In stark contrast to the rest of the family, this man was hitting everybody else. He was terrorizing his entire family, but not necessarily using that physical violence on Kagan, at least according to these uh, the, the stepkids. Now... What's interesting about that is just because he never necessarily laid a hand on his biological son does not mean that there was not a power dynamic at play there on the emotional side of things. And being in a situation where you are possibly very close with your dad, 
You're going to brothels together. You're possibly sharing phones and accounts with them that of a sexual nature. And if you bring your friend over to the house and your father has sex with that friend, to some extent you're acting as a pimp for your dad. Yeah, it's like a it's like a procurement. It's like a like you know, and that that seems to indicate some level of power dynamic between father and son. That's a little bit more subtle than Kagan lives in fear of his father because he beat him growing up. It's a little bit different than that, but it still could mean that there are certain expectations of Kagan that he's expected to, you know, get for his father or, or you know, basically his father gets the pick of what he wants to do and Kagan kind of can deal with that. I don't know. We don't have enough details at that point, but it's, it's suggestive of a weird dynamic between these two men. Certainly if Kagan Klein and his father Tony saw part of Kagan's role in that relationship as Kagan having the responsibility to procure women or to procure ways for Tony to obtain sexual pleasure, that casts a potentially very interesting light on future events between the two. It really, it really does. Let's talk a bit about what we know about Tony Klein. He was a very violent person. We've talked with his stepkids. We've talked with people who knew him. And there was just a tremendous capacity for physical violence against people when he got angry. And he didn't always seem able to just confine his anger and his retaliation to adults. Obviously, he beat his his two stepkids. He gave his stepdaughter a black eye when she was four years old. Court records talk about a time when he appears to have stalked an 11-year-old girl. We also know that he did not seem to have a great deal of respect for women other than to provide him with sexual gratification. The court records we found uncovered instances, multiple instances of Tony Klein calling up women, some of whom knew him, some of whom didn't. And when they picked up the phone, he would immediately begin making noises as if he was gratifying himself sexually. I want to add to that, and this is something that I think a lot of our listeners have picked up on and have messaged us about, but his level of impulsiveness is, I think, something that should not be overlooked in this discussion. Uh, That speaks to what you're talking about, uh, these kind of non-contact sexual offenses where he's calling up women and pretending to masturbate. But it also speaks to his treatment of his stepkids, because in one instance, Gwen, his stepdaughter, mentioned, you know, she could be just out in the lawn doing something, and suddenly he's threatening her with a BB gun, or he's threatening her with an ATV, like a a small vehicle, and, and trying to scare her. There's one point where he just tells her, run. Yes, and it's like... It's not enough that he's violent. It's not a situation where what you might kind of envision where, and this is a horrific situation in of itself. I'm not downplaying this, but it's not like a situation where it's like somebody spilled some water and he flips out because he's like confronted with a negative stimuli and then he can't control his anger. He seems to almost be like seeking out situations where he can inflict pain. And I think that goes beyond just getting pissed off and violent very easily. It's like it's something that he does. It's something that maybe gratifies him. I don't know, but it's it's really it's really disturbing and also so impulsive that he was actually committing some of these acts in front of outsiders, in front of people who are not 
directly in the family at family gatherings. This was this was very in your face abuse. And it seems like uh he should have been he should have been frankly collared for some of this stuff. It it seems like from the perspective of the sources we've talked to at least, there wasn't really much will within law enforcement locally to do something about this, which is kind of baffling given the extent of the abuse that we've heard about. But um, unfortunately in society, sometimes I guess that's just not taken seriously when it should be. Yes. Tony clearly felt empowered and free to do almost anything he wanted without worry of consequences. And it's tempting to call that sort of behavior delusional But the fact is, he was correct because he committed many acts of violence, many acts of physical abuse, many acts of emotional abuse, and he never really seemed to suffer much consequences for it. The community, the law enforcement, whatever you want, however you want to characterize it, there wasn't a will there to stop this man's behavior. I'm not sure why there wasn't. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it at all. So somewhere along the line, the Anthony underscore Shots account is created. I'm just going to call it Anthony Shots. The account is most clearly associated with Keg and Klein, but police seem to believe that there were at least two different people accessing and using the account, and they believe that both of those people were residing at the home that Kagan Klein shared with his father. That's so important to emphasize the residence here because I think if you don't emphasize that, people could come away with the idea that, well, maybe someone in Colorado or someone in California is also accessing it. That's not the case. All of the access that the police talk about seems to have been coming from within the home that Kagan Klein shared with his father, Tony Klein, in Peru, Indiana. And I think it's very interesting because this case brings up sort of different writing styles and speech patterns, you know, in, a, in an online digital format. And it's so true. I mean, if you I think if somebody if people have messaged the murder sheet, if they got a response that was very like maybe had some emojis, maybe had some exclamation points. You know, that was me. Even if I signed it, Anya and Kevin, I was the one primarily writing that post. If it's a little bit more terse a little bit more refined with its use of punctuation and emojis or lack thereof then it, then it's Kevin. We we type, we communicate differently. You know, our that reflects something about our personality or our upbringing or, you know, who we are as people. And police seem to be applying that same sort of thinking and analysis to the Anthony Schatz communications. And I wonder maybe the Emily Ann communications as well. Kagan's other alternative uh, persona. Yeah, the other persona was Emily Ann. Uh, I, I don't know how much time uh, people have spent reading the portions of the transcripts which describe the interactions Emily Ann had with different people. I'm not sure I would recommend reading them all other than just to get a brief flavor of it because it's pretty unpleasant reading. But a lot of the Emily Ann messages seem to be coming from a person pretending to be uh, a young girl trying to get other young girls interested in performing sexual acts for her father, who was in his 40s. Yes. And police pointed out, and I think we share this opinion, that 
a lot of those other accounts that this person seemed to be communicating with, this Emily, this Emily Ann account seemed to be communicating with, um, almost seemed to be other adult male predators. And it seems to be more of attempting to disguise an exchange of child sexual abuse materials as opposed to enticing real underage girls to do things. Uh, that's just my opinion. That's, again, also opin- opinion that the detectives shared with Kagan in the interview in 2020. But uh, I guess we, we won't know for certain unless more information is released. At least on the surface, there was one encounter described in the transcript where Emily Ann wanted to have someone watch her father masturbate via, I believe, Skype. And talking about... Uh, sexual boundaries and stuff again obviously for uh, a person whatever the age to arrange for someone else to see one of their parents uh, gratifying themselves is obviously uh, abhorrent i want to loop back to something you brought up a bit earlier but it's the it's the phone calls that tony klein made to women in his area one was uh, a person he dated and the other was a total stranger. Right. These these uh, phone calls where he was pretending to masturbate. We called that earlier a non-contact sexual offense. It's an offense that is obviously sexual in nature, but it doesn't involve touching, physical coercion, anything like that. I think it's very interesting that he was caught up in that case and that here we have sort of different behavior on the surface, but ultimately also a non-contact sexual offense this exchange of sexual abuse materials, this um, attempting to prey on underage girls who Anthony Schatz and Emily Ann are possibly corresponding with. That's very interesting to me. Yes, and in the phone calls, he was making women listen to him either masturbate or pretend to masturbate. We can't know which. And in these Emily Ann interactions... There was attempts made for people to watch Tony Klein masturbate. So there's certainly a commonality there. Yeah, it seems to be the same exact behavior. You know, there's a record of this almost, even though it's taking on a slightly different look. And there seems to be almost a, I don't know, a learning curve where it's like, well, I got in trouble for that first batch. Now maybe I'm doing it in a way that, uh, there's plausible deniability. I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating here, obviously. But there seems to be like a distancing. You know, it, it becomes less, listen to me masturbate. And, you know, do you want to watch my father masturbate? I just think that's very interesting. It's like an evolution of, of uh, this modus operandi of this predator. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, 
spot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year. In conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes, EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And even the all of the Anthony Schott's behavior when it comes to tricking uh, young girls or soliciting girls into providing compromising pictures of themselves, those are also would be classified as non-contact sexual offenses. Yes, it's it's actually interesting. One thing that I think we learned from speaking with Kathy Fry, who was our guest um, in our episode, The Delphi Murders on Internet Predators, uh, was that, you know, internet predators abducting and murdering children is horrifying. It's a horrific situation whenever it happens. It is relatively rare as far as murders go, and even as far as the sexual abuse of children goes. Like, that specific configuration of events is not a common one. But this sextortion behavior of like, oh, I'm your age, send me photos, now I have the photos, I have power over you, I can blackmail you, I can use these photos however I choose, I can send them to my uh, sexual predator buddies as well. That... That is more in line with what you typically see from an online predator. If it turns out, and I think you and I are both in the opinion that uh, the Klein lead is a very promising one for law enforcement, but if it turns out that this this is it and you know this goes to trial, it will be interesting and probably deeply upsetting to learn how exactly did this sort of sexual predator operation on the internet escalate to the point of murder. What specifically happened? Right. And was this a situation where potentially one person started it and had no plans to commit murder and then somebody else got looped into it and took things to a higher escalation and a murder happened? Or was that a plan from the beginning and it was this fantasy from predators that played out? 
Um, or maybe an, uh, another option that I'm not thinking of right now. I don't know. I just, it's, I think it is important to iterate and say that, you know, there, there's not necessarily a huge number of cases like this. It's unique in some ways. It stands out because from the perspective of a criminal, somebody who's a sexual offender, you know, killing one of your victims in, in that sense is uh, going to just call attention. One thing that we saw recently, too, that also kind of boggles my mind, I don't remember the username, but somebody on Reddit posted, I thought, a really, really good question recently, which was, if Kagan Klein, if Anthony Schatz, if whatever, whoever was using these accounts to prey on underage girls, why were they going after girls in this area, in the area where the clients live. You know, it, it, the internet makes it so that anybody can communicate with anybody anywhere in the world. So if the intent was to always maintain physical distance and, and never try to prey on anybody in person, you would think they could have easily gone after victims in Florida or, you know, New York, Arizona, wherever. Just from the perspective of potentially creating a logistical nightmare for responding officers or, you know, jurisdiction issues. Why go after people who are essentially, you know, as close to neighbors as you can get, essentially? Based on what we know now, that's an excellent question. The problem from my perspective, is that we don't know what we don't know. We've identified some of the people that Anthony Schatz communicated with, and they all seem to be located within driving distance of the Klein residence in Peru, Indiana. But for all we know, there were other people he communicated with who we haven't identified who may have been in other states. But certainly there seems to have been uh, a focus on more local victims including Libby German. We know at some point the Anthony Schatz account made contact with Liberty German. And we know that Libby became uh, enthralled with the Anthony Schatz persona. He presented himself as being young, attractive, and wealthy. None of those descriptors really apply to Kagan Klein, and certainly not to his father. So Libby became intrigued with that persona and became interested in meeting him. Uh, we know, in fact, that there were some communications between the Anthony Schatz account and Libby as late as the morning of Libby's death. We know that shortly thereafter, uh, a friend of Libby's messaged Anthony Schatz and said, basically, isn't it awful what happened to Libby? And Anthony Schatz replied by saying, yeah, I was supposed to meet her, but she never showed up. How do you interpret that? Uh, it almost seems like unnecessarily explaining something that you think you might need to explain away. To me, it shows like a level of, well, I might be looked at for this, so I better explain why I have all these communications with this girl who has ended up murdered. So I can say, well, I, I did plan to meet her, but it never happened. 
trying to establish that kind of distance while also copping to what you have to cop to. If I was hanging out with person A at their house all day and we were, you know, doing different things, spending time together, and then person A ended up murdered and, you know, regardless of what, whether or not I did it, it probably makes sense in most cases for me to at least admit to, yes, I was at the house because you're going to find my DNA, you're going to find my fingerprints. Um, I will admit that, but... I stress that I was out of the house by 5 p.m. and the murder happened at 6 p.m. Basically, it's it's kind of a it's a technique. I mean, and it probably makes sense whether you're guilty or not, because you, you know, might want to, again, explain why certain things might indicate that you did it. So you're saying that perhaps Anthony Schatz knew that people knew he was supposed to meet Libby that day. So he was preemptively explaining. Or that her phone would indicate that or that documentation left behind would indicate that not necessarily that she told anybody, but just that there was evidence potentially out there that could lead back to him. So he was basically in your mind offering an alibi before he's even asked for an alibi before he's even accused of anything. Yeah. And you know, Oh, well I told this girl as I told her, I wasn't, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't know where she was, you know. It's it's it seems it seems like a highly defensive response. And also, you know, I don't know. It it I it 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 definitely it ra- it set off alarm bells for me when I read it. If he was if he was pretty confident that there was nothing out there to implicate him, he could have just said, "No, I haven't." Like, I mean, what happened? Or, "Yeah, I heard about that. That's ho- horrible." You know, why why try to plant the little seed of um Right. Oh yeah, I was supposed to meet her, because you know that that's out there. You know that police have that police either have it or could easily get it. After the murders, the clients take a trip to Las Vegas, during which the holder of the Anthony Schatz account keeps close tabs on what's happening in the Delphi case, and they also do some interesting uh, Google searches on things like. Is it possible to trace IP addresses through social media? Seems like an unusual vacation on a number of levels. There's a strange drug deal involving Kagan Klein that he keeps stressing was a drug deal. And he's very vague on what they got up to. I don't know about our listeners, but I think when we go on a vacation, even if we are a couple years removed from said vacation, and certainly if we're a couple of weeks removed... Um, you know, we, we remember what we got up to. We can say we went to this casino and that casino and we saw this show. And he, he seems very reluctant to do that in this interview with cops, which I thought was odd. I just thought that was, I don't know. I just wanted to highlight that because I, I have questions about the Vegas trip. The Vegas trip seems very bizarre to me. They then come back to Peru at which point there is uh, an intriguing incident. Can you discuss that? This incident that then happens after the Vegas trip. Um, a, a young girl, underage girl, is, has been communicating with Anthony Schatz and like Libby wants to meet up. So she gives the Anthony Schatz account her address, her home address, Um. After school one day, when she knows she's going to be alone, she wants him to come over. 
And around that time, she looks out the window and sees a man in a ski mask looking in the window. So it's a it's a really horrifying image. Sort of uh, suggestive that girls who were seeking to meet up with Anthony Schatz in some way were being put in serious peril. It also indicates that if if Abby and Libby were killed by whoever was operating the Anthony Schatz account or somebody with knowledge of communications in the Anthony Schatz account, then, you know, that behavior, that predatory behavior and that predatory behavior that was actually spilling out into, you know, beyond just the internet and internet communications, that was continuing even directly after the murders. Yeah, my question is, if the person in the ski mask was in fact Bridge Guy. Why would Bridge Guy be engaging in that sort of risky behavior just days after having committed the murders? I think that a lot of us, and I count myself in this group um, as as true crime consumers, we kind of we we consume a lot of content around true crime, and then maybe we make draw some conclusions that are are a little bit shakier than they seem. And what I'm talking about here is when we talk about, you know, classical serial killers, there's a lot of narratives in crime shows and nonfiction and fiction about, okay, well, you know, they're going to kill again, or there's a cooling off period and whatnot. And, And I would argue, I would, I would argue that those cases are often the extreme and very rare and it's very useful to profile those kinds of predators and whatnot. But I also think that we can't account for people being really reckless, really stupid and driven by their desire to attain sexual pleasure, hurt people, cause pain, whatever their particular motive is. And I don't know. I could see uh, the killer of Libby and Abby maybe getting really freaked out and not doing anything like that again. But I could also see the person, you know, getting very excited and maybe overconfident about what they were doing and seeing if they could do it again. Um, I'm not necessarily convinced that it's necessarily the same person. I think it could be, but if you have an account that is being accessed by multiple adult men, then you open the door for different people doing different acts within this case. We've heard from multiple sources who have lived in Peru, Indiana for decades, who went to school with Tony Klein, that he engaged in peeping Tom behavior that he stuck a tree branch into a girl's window in order to attempt to lift up her sleeping her lift up her nightgown while she was sleeping uh he does not have respect for women's privacy is what we've heard from many many people he's had that reputation for years you know it it's one of those open secrets within the town just like his uh physical abuse of his family was. And so when when we heard about 
the ski mask incident, and then we're hearing all that from sources, it, it really raises some questions. Much like the information about the Emily Ann account talking about her quote-unquote father masturbating links with the phone calls. I believe that it's possible that the uh, the peeping Tom incident or this this ski mask incident links with a uh, with uh, those past peeping Tom incidents. I think it's very interesting. We all have heard stories about uh, serial killers and murderers uh, engaging in voyeurism, and it uh, it certainly shows. It, it's it's really it's really it's the chilling image that these girls were trusting this account with their personal information and all this was happening then as a result. A few days later, there is a search at the Klein residence. A number of devices associated with Kagan Klein are seized by police. Sometime during all this process, Kagan Klein is given a polygraph test during which he is asked questions about the murder of Libby and Abby. He's asked about whether or not he was directly involved. He's asked whether or not he has knowledge of who committed those murders. According to Kagan and according to police, the results of that polygraph test showed that he was deceptive in his replies. Shortly after the search, Kagan moves out of his dad's house. About three years later, he is arrested and charged with many counts related to the child sexual abuse materials which were found on his devices. A lot to unpack there. I'll note that police honed in on him pretty quickly. Just two or so weeks after the murders, he's already being brought in. They're raiding the house. I think that's very interesting. But then, just as quickly, they're backing off. Yes. Seemingly. Seemingly. I guess we, we don't know what is going on behind the scenes at this point. One thing that sort of baffled both of us when we were reading about this is in this Journal Courier article about the raid, you have a, an FBI agent pretty, pretty conclusively, pretty concretely saying... You know, we don't think this guy had anything to do with it. And by this guy, he was presumably referring to Kagan Klein. Yeah, and you and I have talked about that a lot behind the scenes, but it would have been pretty easy for him to give a comment and basically say, you know, we're looking at a lot of leads, we can't talk about anything. I mean, God knows the authorities have been so reluctant to give out any information on this case. I don't know what happened with this to prompt that FBI agent to say this, and then for... And then for things to turn out like they did with three years later, he's being hauled back in. But yeah, I, I would be very curious as to what motivated them to seemingly back off from Kagan and what motivated them to seemingly pivot back towards him. I don't like to give unnecessary criticism or praise to the police when there's so much about that situation that we don't know. On the positive side, on the positive side, you have the fact that detectives told Kagan that 
the largest investigation into child sexual abuse materials in Indiana history was going down as a result of the investigation into him. One could potentially conjecture that they waited so long to charge him because charging him would set off a chain of events that they they wanted to have a lot of their work done before that happened. On the negative side, it seems like they could have charged this guy immediately with what they found on his phones. And it's kind of just from the perspective of even if they weren't convinced he was the Delphi killer, what he was doing, what, what these devices had on them, what these accounts were engaging in online is just really heinous. And I don't understand why they weren't working to get him off the street. Is my, I mean, yeah, I mean, just from a public safety perspective, it's pretty, it seems pretty risky to allow a guy like that to continue to go free and, and not get to the bottom of that immediately. Do you have any thoughts as to Kagan moving out of his father's residence? The two seem pretty close. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's interesting. Did something change in the relationship then? It's not like he got a job. It's not like he got a great new job offer and he had to move, you know, a couple miles away. So he wanted his own space. There's other instances that could prompt him to move out that have nothing to do with the case that we would not be privy to necessarily. Like he gets a new girlfriend or something else happens. But I don't know, given given what we know now, I think it's it's interesting. Was there a was there a we need to go our separate ways decision at that point? Um, Kagan's discussion in the interview with HLN that happened in 2021 indicates that even though he had moved out of his dad's house, that he was still in pretty close contact with his father. And we also learned from the 2020 police interview that police told Tony Klein what they were looking at Kagan for. Kagan sort of in that talk kind of says, my dad will never talk to me again when he finds out, you know, what I'm accused of doing and, and whatnot. And they basically say, oh, he already knows. We told him back in 2017. So Kagan seemed to want to have this image of his dad where his dad doesn't know anything. His dad doesn't know what's going on and will be utterly horrified when he finds out. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. 
So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Kagan, and to some extent his father Tony, both seem to be very performative. And to me, when I read that segment, it sounded like Kagan was trying to create an image of his father as being the sort of man who would be horrified by child sexual abuse materials. Yeah, who wouldn't? You know, Ke- you know, he's he's the type of man who would disown his only biological son just because, you know, he he had a, was accused of that. Right. And it's like a lot of Kagan's discussions with police and throughout this whole thing have smacked me of like protesting a little bit too much. You know, not really, not really giving off the impression of, of like, yeah, my dad is, that goes against everything my dad stands for, but more of wanting to at least subtly create the impression that it does. And then when being confronted on that, then offering examples and details that run completely contrary to that. You know, telling, telling HLN, um, you know, my my you know my dad wouldn't do this. Oh, but he could have. I mean, physically, yeah. And then emotionally, sure, he was a horrible guy, and he was very abusive to me and my half siblings growing up. But you know, I don't think he did it. <laughs> and and I think that's also interesting. We've talked about this on Gray Hughes when we've spoken with him and um, amongst ourselves. But there is this kind of the twenty twenty interview and the twenty twenty one interview that we obtained that we released are very different tonally when it comes to Kagan speaking about his father in particular. 2020, there's a lot of dancing around who had access to your phone, who also lived with you. And is, you know, that that's Tony, right? And there's not a lot of like direct, like, you know, do you think your dad could have been involved in this? But you have, you have uh, Kagan steadfastly throwing friend number one under the bus, not Tony. You know, Tony is totally you know that's not that's not even an option 2021 that's not the case anymore how would you describe 2021 in terms of how kagan is talking about his dad in 2021 kagan seems to be more open to the possibility of his father being involved he doesn't go as far as say, I think my father was involved. You say things, well, you know, my father certainly would have been physically capable of the murders, but I don't think he did it. Oh, my father certainly had access to my accounts, but, you know, that doesn't mean anything. So he's moving towards accepting his father having a greater role in the murders. While also still being kind of performative, you know, like... He's got to realize that that's not a robust defense. He's got to realize how it sounds. It's almost like he's... It almost strikes me as him playing a little bit coy. You know, if I wanted to throw somebody under the bus, but I didn't want to create the impression that I was doing so, that I might... You might sound like that. Yeah, of course, he had a gun exactly like that, and he was missing for five hours on that night, but, I mean, you don't think... So kind of like a passive-aggressive way of uh, blaming someone else. Yeah, very passive-aggressive. And I'm not saying he's... I'm not I'm not saying that Tony Klein is innocent or, or anything. I'm just... I'm more of just saying that 
Kagan doesn't seem to want to come out and say that, but he seems to be finding a pretty passive-aggressive way of opening the door for that. A lot of people have a lot of questions about this case. I made up a list of some of the things that I had my biggest questions about, and I'd like to float them to you. How did Kagan Klein get his money? Well, it was not from working a steady, gainful job, seemingly. No. And he claimed to have uh, involvements in the marijuana business, which don't seem to have been true. He he claimed that he used his phone to design menus for restaurants. People uh, we've talked to who have worked in graphic design, so that's not really how you make menus. You don't do things like that on your phone. Obviously, he had money. He... He was able to live and function. Where did this money come from? His father. We've heard from many people that his father has worked at the Kokomo Transmission Plant, which is a massive sprawling Chrysler operation with many different plants within sort of one area for many years, and that he makes good money. It's a union job. It's a good job. People people like those jobs. He He's been there for years. He's he's senior. So, I mean, his dad seemingly actually makes some decent money. It also seems possible to me that there might be an illicit source of income for Kagan. That's true. Yes. I think that's we have D- to be D- open to that. Dylan told us that uh, Kagan had a lot of uh, activity on the dark web. Or that Kagan claimed that. Yes. In any case, I would love to know where that money came from. And if there was an illicit source, I'd be very interested in getting the details of it. I guess I'll just state it out loud what we're kind of hinting at now. Was he making money selling child sexual abuse materials on the dark web? That's the question. I think both of us are reluctant to kind of come out and say definitely or or, because we just don't know. But... I think the possibility is there because there's a lot of discussion about where did he get this money? Uh, who is he sending these materials to? Who was Emily Ann the persona corresponding with? We're, we're, you know, at one point, one of the officers refers to like a money account around Anthony Schatz. And nobody seems to know, I don't know for myself whether that refers to Anthony shots like flashing around a lot of money in his account or like dollar bills or something. And then, you know, that being his style or if it refers to something like a Venmo or like some sort of cryptocurrency situation. I don't know, but it, I think it's a very good question to ask because it could really open this case up to a whole new level. Here's another couple of questions that are related. Why did Kagan Klein move out of his father's house? Also, in one of the court documents, he spoke one time about wanting to pack an extra bag on the trip to Vegas so he could sneak out and away from his father while his father was sleeping. Why, after the murders, was it so important for Kagan, in Kagan's mind at least, to separate from his father? I guess there's a couple of plausible scenarios regarding that. If if Kagan... If Kagan has guilty knowledge of the murders but did not participate and believes that his father may have participated, perhaps it's a fear thing or perhaps it's like a, this is too much. I can't, I can't live with you anymore. 
if it's if it's a situation where they both were directly involved or they both participated, they both have guilty knowledge, perhaps it's a perhaps it's almost a kind of a a guilty move and sort of like we both did this, maybe it's better if we aren't like a unit anymore in terms of living together or doing this on these apps to abuse these young girls or trade child sexual abuse materials. Maybe it's like a, we need to kind of destroy the unit that committed these crimes so that it can't be traced back to us anymore. And then, I mean, I have to add, it could just be for completely innocuous reasons. You know, a lot of millennials, he's a, he's a young millennial, as am I. A lot of millennials uh, had a delayed start to moving out of their parents' houses because the economy and underemployment and things like that. And it's possible that he just reached the point where he thought, okay, I want to move out. So we got we to gotta at least open the possibility to it having nothing to do with the case. Another thing I've wondered about is when the police came and searched the house a couple of weeks after the murders, they seized a wide variety of devices linked to Kagan Klein. And as we know, those devices had the worst, vilest forms of child sexual abuse materials imaginable. They did not find and did not take the device Kagan was using at the time of the murders. This would have been the device that he was using to communicate with Liberty German. So why did the Kleins take special pains to hide that one particular device. And how did they manage to hide it from the police? They, they obviously hid it because there was evidence of that they did not want the police to see. And whatever that evidence was on that phone, presumably it would have been something far worse than the child sexual abuse materials that were on the devices they turned over. Yes, when you're willing to say, okay, we're going to have to take the the hit on these other devices, then I would imagine it's pretty, pretty damning whatever was on that phone. And our understanding is that Kagan deleted apps from that phone, which now has contributed to the charge against him of obstruction of of justice. Yes, obviously there was material on that phone that he did not want police to see. In terms of how he hid it, I I can't even begin to imagine because I've never tried to hide anything from police investigators. I wouldn't know where to begin. Could it have been as simple as like leaving it at at a trusted friend's house? I don't know. Does that mean he had foreknowledge of the raid? Foreknowledge of the raid. And then if you're hiding one device, why not hide all of them? Is it possible that he treated the phone that he was currently using to communicate with girls, including Libby German, um, as special in the way that, like, he has all his other phones kind of, like, in a, you know, in his drawer in his bedroom, but that one, he always kind of has it stashed away somewhere where, you know, presumably if there is a raid, police are not permitted to look. I don't know. That seems like really a lot of planning from a person who doesn't, frankly, I don't think, I don't think Kagan Klein is necessarily a stupid person. He seems to have at least had some tech savvy, but I don't know if I've seen anything to make me think that he was playing like 5D chess with police here. Speaking of planning and the level of planning and advanced planning 
that may have gone into this. Shortly before the murders, Liberty German did a factory reset of her phone. Did she do this at the direction of Anthony Schatz? And if so, does that indicate a level of premeditation and planning from Schatz as to what he planned to do with Liberty? It's one of those things that could be incredibly significant or it could be just a meaningless coincidence. I think personally, I'm more open to the possibility that she did that under the direction of whoever was running the Anthony Schatz account. I used to be of the opinion that it was a complete red herring and it had nothing to do with the case. So I've shifted more in the direction of being open to that possibility. But barring anything, I don't know. Issues with your phone happen, right? I mean, they do happen. If he asked her to wipe her phone a week or so before their planned meeting, that seems to suggest he's trying to hide their relationship, perhaps because he's planning to do something in that meeting. I would indicate, I think it would indicate to me that he was planning, that the murder was fully premeditated. Or, or at least some sort of attack was premeditated, completely premeditated, in that, like, that was the sole purpose of the meeting from Anthony Schatz's perspective. So back in December, the ISP released a couple of statements relating to this case in general and Kagan Klein in particular. And in one of them, the ISP says, uh, we will always review, learn from, and make any necessary adjustments. We do not believe that any person has done anything intentionally wrong but we will continue to critically evaluate our efforts. That seems to be a very defensive statement. Well, let me, when they say we, we don't believe any person has done anything intentionally wrong, they're basically saying that someone who is running the investigation has done something wrong. Yes. Maybe they didn't do it intentionally, but they did do something wrong. And I think that needs to be spelled out at some point. The ISP is a taxpayer-funded organization. There needs to be accountability for how they do their jobs. What this statement just does is sort of add f- further adds further confusion because it sort of seems to confirm that something went wrong. And for 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 my point of view, I I think that it's good when a police organization admits that maybe something wasn't perfect or something was wrong. So, not necessarily criticizing them on that front, but on the front of just kind of, I don't know, adding further confusion, it seems like maybe that was, uh, maybe that's something that can be discussed down the road. But if they're not willing to, like, spell out what went wrong, then I I don't really know what the purpose of that statement was. In general, I was impressed by the handling of the uh, 2020 interview by the two officers involved with that. So that gave me some hope that things are moving in a in a good direction at this point generally though i think kevin and i have often been pretty critical of the isp on this case especially on other cases that we've covered but but in this case as well because my main problem i don't know what sort of challenges that the the investigators are facing in terms of the evidence that they have in proving a case um i'm not going to criticize them on that because you know we just don't know what we don't know one thing that we are grateful about at this point is that it seems that with the release of these transcripts 
the communication between, you know, members of the community that cares about the Delphi case and follows this case has been very much based on the facts instead of speculation. And there's been a lot of really great discussions that we're, you know, proud to have been a part of. And we're very impressed with so many of these uh, folks who kind of just follow this case, care about Abby and Libby, care about getting justice. And they are out there sort of thinking about this and turning it over in their minds. And uh, we just hope that I think, I hope that for the family's sake in this case, that the resolution is not too far away in terms, we get asked a lot. We've gotten asked a lot. The question of where we think the case is and is it close to a resolution? So many people are desperate for this to be over and for a trial to commence and answers to be apparent for the families of the two girls, for the two girls themselves who deserve justice, for the community of Delphi that has been completely traumatized, and for the people around the world who follow this case and care about it. And that's one question I feel like I always never know how to answer. How would you sum up your thoughts on where this case is and whether we might be close to a resolution? These transcripts we released don't give us a roadmap for the future. They don't tell us what's going to happen tomorrow. But one thing they do give, at least to me, is hope. When you follow this case from a distance, when you don't get much communication from the police, and when five years passes with no arrest, no charges filed, it's easy to get discouraged It's easy to get the idea that perhaps behind the scenes the police aren't working hard or imagine that the police are chasing their tails going after one red herring after another, much like people do in some of the online discussions about this case. But these transcripts revealed to me is that the police are actually taking this case extraordinarily seriously. They're working very, very hard and they are on a path that seems to me to be very promising. And we know that they seem to find it promising too. And the reason we know that is because a few days ago, they released yet another update on the case saying that they were looking for people who spoke with the Anthony Schatz account on an app that used to be called Yellow and is now called Yubo. That's a French app. It's full of creeps. It's full of adult predators all about live streaming and police think Anthony Schatz was on that one too and they want to know who was talking with him on that app. So that tells me that they're still on this. They're still on this Anthony Schatz angle. They're trying to run this down. They're trying to figure this out. And I think that should give people some hope that you know, sure the HLN interview happened in December 2021 the um, initial Kagan Klein interview with police happened in August of 2020. But right now, here in April of 2022, they're still soliciting information. They're still gathering information about Anthony Schatz. And I hope whoever had access to that account and whoever was using that to uh, prey on young girls and, and trade child sexual abuse materials and potentially even lure girls into danger in 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 the physical world you know i hope whoever was doing that is terrified right now i think i think they really should be and we may not 
be talking about the Delphi murders every week or in every episode, but we will continue to be working on this story behind the scenes. We've gotten a lot of information since we uh, released the transcripts from different people. Not all of it can be released at once. Not all of it can be vetted immediately, but it's something that we're continuing to build on. So uh, continue to stay tuned and we will get that information to you as soon as we can. And let's just end on a note saying that if you have information about Tony Klein or Kagan Klein that you want to share with us, you know, just email us. We're at murdersheet at gmail.com. And of course, if you do have information about the murders of Abigail Williams and Liberty German, please email Abby and Libby Tip at C A C O S H R F dot com or call the tip line at 765 822 3535. Thanks everybody for listening. To our surprise, We've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So, if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on the murder sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet and on Facebook at M Sheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to the murder sheet, please leave us a five star review to help us gain more exposure and send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.